0: The rest of us will open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're back in Mark, verses 35 through 37. We'll also be in Psalm 110 later, so if you want to put your thumb in Mark 12 and flip back to Psalm 110, and maybe your Bible has one of those ribbons or you can put your connection card That you didn't drop in the offering plate. Have you ever been in a situation where you were trying to show the obvious to someone and they just could not see it? Or somebody was trying to show the obvious to you and you just could not see it. You couldn't paradigm shift. You were locked up in your own way of thinking. This morning we find our Lord Jesus in that very situation. He's answered all of the religious leaders' questions and answered them thoroughly with wisdom and in such a way that it actually demonstrated the religious leaders' foolishness, which is probably why their hearts hardened up and they refused to see they were burning with shame these were the folks who always had the right answers theologically and here comes this carpenter's son this nazarene this galilean from nobody from nowhere stealing their thunder and making them look foolish in front of the crowds and yet any judgment they had coming they deserved Any judgment you and I have coming, we deserve. And yet, Jesus is merciful. He didn't have to continue teaching. He'd already done enough, demonstrated enough, said enough. So that man is without excuse. And yet, mercifully, he leads the crowd to the Scriptures to demonstrate that the scriptures reveal that Jesus is Messiah and that Messiah must be divine. This was the very claim that was the stumbling block for the religious leaders. In fact, it's this claim that made them want to destroy Jesus. Blasphemous to call himself equal with God. And so Jesus opens the Scriptures to them to demonstrate, no, this is what the Scriptures have always said. You know the Scriptures. You should know these things. So Jesus, after answering their questions thoroughly, says, now I will ask the questions. It reminds me of Job crying out to God, asking all these questions. You know, how could this happen to me? I'm a good man. I'm a righteous man. I just don't see what I could have done in my life to deserve this kind of suffering. And once all his friends go away and it's just Job and God, God says, now I will ask the questions, oh man. And you will listen and you will answer. By the time God's done asking the questions, Job has nothing to say other than to cover his mouth and say, Woe is me, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand, and he repents in dust and ashes. And so here is God now questioning man in the same vein. All right, now it's God's turn to ask the questions. And he says, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, and so in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. Sadly, the crowd just enjoyed listening to him. Before we go any further, I hope that that is not indicative of us. We just love listening to Jesus. We love listening to a good sermon. It's what we do in response to what Jesus has to say that matters. Do we respond in faith? Do we respond in obedience and repentance? Jesus was showing them very clearly in their own scriptures that Messiah is God. He proposes for them a dilemma in the same way they thought they were doing to him when they would come to trap him. Give him a question that he has to answer in such a way that he's going to have to side with us or get the crowd on his bad side. And Jesus is much better at playing this game than they are. The rabbis knew that Messiah had to be the son of David. Scriptures are clear about that. In 2 Samuel 7:12, God makes a covenant with David. He says, "When your fathers are complete and you lie down, excuse me, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you" and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who came after David that built a house for God's name? Who built Solomon? You're right, Solomon. And did Solomon's throne last forever? No, so they knew Messiah would come to fulfill this prophecy, but he had to come from the line of David. So how can it be that Messiah is the son of David if David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, called his own unborn descendant, my Lord? Any fathers out here referring to their sons as my Lord? I hope not. Any sons out here want their father to call them my Lord? (laughs) You may not say it, but you think it. So here's the dilemma. What is David talking about? There's really only one solution to the dilemma. The Messiah must have been in existence before David, yet still be in the line of David, so he must come after David. How does somebody be in existence before David and after David? Well, he must be divine. This passage reveals the divinity and humanity of Messiah. Jesus is the only solution to this dilemma. The God-man. He's the son of God, so he pre-existed David. Remember when Peter was asked by Jesus, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, well, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated, and others say you're a prophet, maybe Elijah. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says you are the Christ. That word means Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's not something men come up with on their own. But Jesus is also the son of David. How do we know that? In Luke's gospel, in the fourth chapter, we see a genealogy, and he traces Jesus' line all the way back to David through his mother, Mary. Matthew, in his genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1, traces Jesus' kingly line back to David through his illegal father, Joseph. Why two genealogies? You know, people... Say the Bible is so amazing. I always wonder if what they mean is they have their own ideas and they come to the Bible and bring their own ideas in the Bible and say, Wow, that's amazing. The Bible tells me exactly what I want it to say to me. Or are they saying the Bible is amazing because it reveals things to me that no one else could have? God is so amazing and so sovereign over the affairs of man and history and creation that. When we come to the Bible and study it, we're constantly blown away by God's plan. And this is one of those cases. In Jeremiah 22.30, God puts a curse on Jeconiah, King Jeconiah, who was in the line of David, for his apostasy and idolatry. And he says, never will someone in your line sit on the throne of David. Well, now we have a problem. If the line of David goes through Jeconiah, then how are we going to have a Messiah in David's line sitting on the throne. God put that curse on Jeconiah's line forever. When God does something and says it's final, it is final. Well, God has a way out of it, right? Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Jesus is in the line of David, the kingly line, because God, the King of Kings, is his real father. But he's also in the line of David through his earthly mother. So God so arranges the affairs of humanity, uh, history, so that Jesus is the perfect Messiah that fulfills all these requirements. Incredible stuff. You'd almost think that the writers of Scripture conspired to come up with this story, but some of them wrote the story before it happened. (laughs) So I don't think they conspired. Where was Jesus quoting from? He was quoting from Psalm 110. In order for this passage to bear down on us with the full weight of its significance, we have to understand that everyone in Jesus' time would know that when Psalm 110 was spoken, it was all about Messianic prophecy. Psalm 110 was the pinnacle of Messianic prophecy. This was the psalm that talked about Messiah's future reign as king and as high priest. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. This is how important this psalm is. Fourteen direct quotations and many other indirect allusions to the psalm. You heard one of those direct quotations when I read from Mark, and you heard another one when I read from Hebrews before the Lord's Supper. And the Jewish rabbis were in complete agreement that this psalm was Messianic prophecy. You have to understand about prophecy, when the writers of Scripture were writing, they wrote as men. They had their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own style of writing, their own vocabulary. In the Psalms, they were trying to employ poetry, rhythm, rhyme, just like any poet would today. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were writing about things that they didn't know they were writing about. So they knew what they were writing about, but there was other meanings to what they were writing they didn't know about. This is the mystery of man and God coming together to write Scripture. It's not dictation, so much as God superintending. Scripture is God breathed. We're told, and so David is writing something. That he has some earthly idea of what he's writing about, and yet so much more. And so Jesus says, How does David, in the Holy Spirit, write, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is messianic prophecy. This is the Lord, Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's the Hebrew verb of being, I am. When Moses asked God what his name was at the burning bush, he said, Yahweh, I am who I am. Hebrew names often described character traits of people, right? Sarai, she laughed. Right? She laughed when God told her that she would be with child. Matthew means gift from God. Yeshua, God saves. So what does God call himself? I am. I always was, I always will be, and I am. It's the most comprehensive thing God can say about himself. And so that is the covenant name of God. It was so holy and still holy among Orthodox Jews today, they won't say the name of God. They'll replace Yahweh with El Shem, the name. Or they'll put G underscore D. They won't even write God. They might be going a little far, but on the flip side, maybe we don't take the name of God as holy as we should. When you see Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d in your Bible, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, Lord or Master. It could refer to an earthly Lord or Master. But in context, you can tell when it's talking about God. It's another name for God in the Bible. In Philippians, when it says God raised Jesus up, he gave him the name that is above every other name. The name isn't Jesus. The name is Lord, is the name God gave Jesus. The name above every other name. Lots of Jesus'. Lots of people named Jesus in Jesus' time. Everybody wanted their kid to be the Messiah, so they named him uh, Yeshua, God saves. Lots of people named Jesus today, right? Jesus? The name above every name is Lord, is Adonai. In fact, when you see the word Jehovah in your Bible, it's really Yahweh mixed with Adonai. And you get Jehovah. There's this little um, formula where you take the letters of one and the vowel pointings of the other and mix them together. You get Jehovah. So now you don't have to say the covenant name of God. You can say Jehovah. So, what's the point then? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. God talking to God? It's what it it says. It's God is talking to God. David's Lord. David was king. So who's his Lord? Messiah. Messiah, given the name of God. Jesus is saying, in essence here, that we have a private conversation between the first two members of the Trinity recorded in Scripture for us. And what's he saying? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is ascended and sits at the right hand of Yahweh And he's ruling right now as we speak. Oh, his enemies are still here on earth, ruling. But under the complete rule and reign and sovereignty of Messiah, Adonai. What's this reference to making your enemies a footstool at your feet? When a king was defeated in biblical times, they would come before the victorious king with whatever people were left and captured, and he would bow before the victorious king, exposing the back of his neck, very vulnerable position. And the victorious king would place his foot on the back of the neck of the defeated king, symbolizing to all the people that I am reigning even over your king. And you can see where the imagery of a footstool comes to mind. How humiliating to make somebody your footstool. And so in very poetic language, Yahweh tells Jesus, Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Isn't that what Jesus is doing now? He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. That's us, Christians, God's people. We volunteer freely. We don't worship God under the sword. It isn't worship me or else. We come freely because He's changed our hearts. He's bent our heart towards Him. As we read from the book of Hebrews, He put His law on our hearts and gives us the power and conviction to follow. I love this imagery. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, The dawn giving birth, what comes from the dawn's womb, a glorious new day, fresh, a second chance, a new start, I love early morning, usually the first one up in my house and it's quiet, everything's peaceful and the wind hasn't kicked up yet and everything's glistening. We have this one oak tree we could see out our front window, and when the sun rises up over the mountain, just from the angle the sun is at and where the oak tree is located across the street, it's the first tree to get hit with the light, and it explodes into flaming light. I like to call it the golden oak. My kids get up early enough, I point it out to them, and they're like, okay, Dad, can we watch cartoons now, you know? Every day has has such great promise. Oh, what will the day bring? This is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Your youth are to you as the dew. Followers of Christ, we feel like youth. I know there's days you don't. But his strength just encourages you. That's the picture here. Messiah is ruling from David's throne now, or as theologians say, already but not yet. He's reigning, but not in the same way he will reign when he returns, sitting on David's throne. And he will reign for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. See, the next slide talks about the Lord and Lord. We've covered that. This is the one stumbling block everybody has when it comes to Jesus, right? His divinity. People are okay with Jesus as prophet, Jesus as teacher, Jesus as holy man, Jesus as wise man, Jesus as a temporary priest. But Jesus is God. is where the problem starts. It's when you treat Jesus as God and his word as truth that people no longer are tolerant of your Christianity, right? It's where the battle is going to be. These are, this is where the battle lines are. Fine, call yourself a Christian. Worship in your house of worship. Just don't preach your Jesus as God to me and don't try to live as if he's God. And yet, that is who Jesus said He was. We can't accept Him on any other terms. Mistakes, uh, brothers and sisters, are going to get higher and higher. And so, to contemplate and meditate on the fact that Jesus is God will prepare your heart for the coming persecution. And it will start with Snide remarks and embarrassment around the water cooler, but I think we're long past that now. The CEO and founder of Mozilla had to resign because he made a $1,000 contribution to the Prop 8 campaign. It's not enough that you hold convictions now. Now you have to hold their convictions and celebrate their convictions. So I don't know if it's hit you yet. Have you had to give up something to worship Jesus as God? Well, certainly you had to give up your own lordship. And you had to give up the notion you could save yourself. But we're going to be asked to profess Jesus as God to a world who doesn't want to hear it. The second half of the psalm reveals to us Messiah as priest. In Psalm 110.4, in verse 4, it reads, The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the first half of the song, Jesus as king. Second half of the song, Jesus as high priest. Lovely arrangement of songs Mrs. Kelly picked this morning. I wonder if she studied her theology because the second-to-last song was about Jesus as priest, and the last one was about Jesus as king. Well done. Or the Holy Spirit arranged that. She's nodding. <laughs> well done. I love it when he does that. Who is this Melchizedek? fun to say his name, Melchizedek. It's a, a compound word. My king is righteous, Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14. He's a historical figure. He actually existed. He was king-priest of Salem when Abraham was had left Ur of the Chaldeans and went off into the wilderness. He met Melchizedek, he even dined with him, and Melchizedek made sacrifices to the Lord. Prophetically, we see him again here in Psalm 110. This is the second time his name comes up in Scripture, so we really don't know much about him. The point is, though, that he's a king-priest, whereas Aaron's line of priesthood, a priest is only a priest. Priest can't be a king. King can't be a priest. Remember when Saul tried to to be a priest? How did that go for him? What happened to him when he tried to be a priest? God removed his anointing and he was no longer king. That was the moment when God removed his anointing. And the anointing was placed on David. But there's a line of priests, this Melchizedekian line, where the king and the priestly offices converge into one person. So in Hebrews 4 through 7, we see that, and in Psalm 110, Jesus is going to be a king priest, or he is a king priest in the line of Melchizedek. Apologize for the typo there at the end of the slide. I guess a Microsoft Word doesn't have Melchizedek in its vocabulary. What are Messiah's priestly duties? We understand what he's doing as king. What is he doing as priest? Well, what's interesting about Jesus as priest is he was not only the priest, but he was the sacrifice. He was not only the sacrifice, he was also the scapegoat. In the Old Testament, Times, the priest would put his hand on a goat and the curses and sin of the people would go on the goat and then they would send the goat out into the wilderness. The outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to be outside God's goodness, His blessing, His countenance. And so they would put the sins on that goat and send him out into the wilderness as a metaphor that Um, God will treat the goat the way we deserve to be treated. He won't turn His back on us. He'll turn His back on the goat. Remember what happened to Jesus on the cross. Everything went dark and the curtain was torn in two and God turned His back from His Son, so to speak, and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the most terrible thing about the cross. It wasn't the pain. It was the separation from God. Then the priest would sacrifice an animal and catch the blood and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. One day a year during the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, it was called. We get the word propitiation from the mercy seat. God's wrath was satisfied through the shedding of blood, and then he'd sprinkle the blood on the people. A very messy scene, and was supposed to be because sin is ugly and it costs God a lot to atone for. And so Jesus did all that on the cross, but what is he doing now in his priestly duties? The writers of Hebrews assure us he doesn't have to be sacrificed again and again and again and again. It's so clear. I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but I, I I get disappointed and even frustrated and upset when certain branches of Christianity claim that Jesus needs to be pulled down from the throne and re-sacrificed on the altar. Once and for all, it is finished. Praise God. What is he doing now? He advocates for his children against the slanderous accusations of the devil. Oh, he's not good enough. She's not worthy of your kingdom. Jesus advocates for us. He's our attorney. What better attorney could you have? Because he doesn't just uh, advocate for us trying to make a case for us with his Father that we are holy. His case is I am holy, and these are my people, and I've atoned for their sin. We're accepted by the Father on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. Secondly, he intercedes for his people. He, He prays for us. This is a mystery that I can't really explain to myself, so I won't try to explain to you, but God prays to God. And so when we pray, he takes uh, our prayers and he intercedes for us. Even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, Romans 8, with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been praying and you just can't seem to get the words out? Or you can't stay awake? Or you just don't know what to pray anymore because it seems like there's too much to pray for my words just seem feeble, and yet the Holy Spirit knows everything perfectly that I should be praying and prays for me. So Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, takes those prayers from the Holy Spirit and intercedes for us. A lot of times our prayer life is hindered because people tell me, I just don't know how to pray, I don't know what to pray. Don't worry, you have Jesus making your prayers perfect. For you. Just be obedient in prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, use that as a guide. Don't pray that prayer over and over and over again. He said, Don't do that. That is a model of the way we are to pray. Thirdly, he alleviates our sorrows, Hebrews 4:14. 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So wonderful to have a priest who can sympathize. With us God has given you pastors and shepherds and leaders to come and share your burdens with and seek guidance and counsel and that's wonderful and, and helpful and we should avail ourselves to that. And yet let's not forget we have a great high priest who understands us perfectly, that you have access to at all times. Sometimes when I'm out away from the church, people find out I'm a pastor. They want me to put in a special word for them. Like somehow my car has become the confessional booth. And I understand that's just a hangover in our culture from other teachings. And yet the Bible clearly teaches you have the confidence to go before the throne of grace to a sympathetic high priest. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Go to Him. If you come in and talk to me, I'm going to point you to Him, really, is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to get out of the way. You need Him, not not an earthly Savior or an earthly King. You have a great High King, High Priest in Heaven. Thirdly, the psalm then reveals Messiah as Lord. It opened with it in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. But something rather interesting happens in this psalm when we get to verse 5. I want you to follow the personal pronouns here, the, the you, yours, and my's. Okay, we're going to do a little grammar. Some people are ready to leave right now. You didn't like grammar in school. When we got to seminary, they made us take English grammar all over again. Remember, one of my friends from Italy failed his English grammar test, failed his first Greek quiz. My Greek professor was Italian, and he tried to speak to my friend in Italian, and he couldn't understand him. And he was so defeated, and he said, here I am in seminary, and I fail English grammar, I fail Greek. And I fail in my own language. <laughs> well, he's since graduated and has a thriving ministry back in Italy teaching the truth to people. Grammar is important. We use a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting the Bible. It's called the grammatical historical method. The, you, you have to follow the grammar to get the right meaning from the text. So let's follow the grammar together. You can do this with me. We'll make this interactive. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's my? Yahweh's, right? Until I make your enemies. Who's your? Messiah, Jesus. We'll say Yahweh or Messiah. The Lord, Yahweh, will stretch forth your Messiah, strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your Enemies, Who's your Messiah? Verse 3, I should have changed the thy to your, but your people, Messiah's people, will volunteer freely in the day of your power, Messiah, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. So you and your are referring to Messiah all the way through. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you Are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who's the you? Messiah. The Lord is at your right hand. Who's right hand? Who's at Messiah's right hand? Well it says the Lord in lowercase. So Messiah is at his own right hand? What's happened here? It appears that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what David's recording for us is that he's now used Adonai to mean Yahweh. Yahweh is at Messiah's right hand now. The place of of power. Verses 5 through 7 of this psalm talk about Jesus returning And destroying his enemies in the battle of Armageddon before his thousand year reign. And what it's telling us is that the power to crush his enemies are going to come from Yahweh at his right hand. So he's reigning on his throne and at his right hand is Yahweh. Have you noticed in the New Testament this is how... Jesus' divinity gets revealed to us. One minute you're definitely talking about God and then you're talking about Jesus and you're not sure when the switch was made. Jesus would talk this way about himself. I and the Father are one. I do the deeds my Father does. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door and say, show me in your Bible where Jesus says he's God, it's everywhere. And here's an example in the Old Testament. So Jesus revealing to the teachers of Israel, this is what the Bible has to say about Messiah. He's not just a man. He's not just a man. He's the king priest. And he's Lord. He will come and conquer and judge his enemies. Verse 5, the Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. So all these would-be potentates who are really nothing will be shattered. He will judge among the nations. We see that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the sheep and goat judgment. The righteous, the sheep on His right and the, the goats on His left. What happens to the goats? They get cast into the outer darkness. Somebody was listening. All right. Jesus won't be the scapegoat anymore. Second time he comes, he will come as judge and conqueror. He will f- fill the nations with corpses. Ooh. You've read Revelation. You know that the terrible day of the Lord will make any war, all world wars, look like nothing compared to that final battle. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country, and then when he's done defeating his enemies, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head, and then he'll reign for a thousand years on David's throne. At the end of that thousand years, the devil will be let out of the abyss. He will conquer the devil in one final battle, throw him into the lake of fire. He'll be defeated forever. I want you to have confidence this morning that Jesus is God. And he's your king and your high priest. You don't need to put confidence in earthly kings. I don't care who wins the next election. I mean, I do like this much. But God works out his perfect will through whoever he puts on earthly thrones. Sometimes he puts kings we don't like on the throne for our own discipline. We get what we deserve. People wanted Saul. Okay, you can have Saul as your king. See how you like that. I also want you to have confidence so on the day when your faith is put to the test and the day is coming that you will hold fast to your profession. I have a book that has helped me immensely with the deity of Christ. I don't like the title of the book, but sometimes the publishers pick the title because they know it will sell more copies, and the writer of the book doesn't have a say in it. So the title of this book is Putting Jesus in His Place. Now, nobody puts Jesus in His Place. You know, It's tongue-in-cheek. But in a positive, redemptive sense, we need to put Jesus in his rightful place. He's already there. We need to put him there in our mind. And they have this great acronym that helps me remember. So when I witness to Jehovah Witnesses, I remember Jesus has the whole world in his hands. You know the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands, which refers to God, but really it refers to Jesus as as God Colossians tells us everything was created by Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus. And so hands is an acronym to help us remember where the Bible gives us proof that Jesus is God, even though the exact words, Jesus is God, may not be there. Except maybe in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. H stands for honor. Jesus has the honor of God. Every time in the Bible you see an angel come or an apostle preaching and people fall at their feet, what does the angel or the apostle say? Don't do that. Get up. We don't worship men. Yet when people fell at Jesus' feet, He didn't say get up. When the woman fell at His feet and washed His feet with her hair and her tears, He didn't say get up. When Thomas came to see Jesus and put his hands in in Jesus' wounds, he fell to his feet and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, Get up, Thomas. Jesus has the honor that to do to God. Jesus has the attributes of God. He was omniscient, he knew men's hearts, he was all powerful, he had authority. Like no one else, he had authority over demon. He had authority over nature. He could stop a storm. Jesus has the names of God. He calls himself I Am. He said before, Abraham was I Am. And they picked up stones to kill him. They knew what he was talking about. He, he's called the Alpha and the Omega in the Bible. And so is God the Father. And he's given the name Lord, Adonai, which is God's name. He has the deeds of God. We needed the letter D there, so we picked deeds instead of works. But He made uh, a little bit of bread and multiplied it. He made, turned water into wine. He walked on water. He raised the dead and he forgave sins. And finally, he has the seat of God. When we get to the book of Revelation and we see John before the throne of God, one minute it's God the Father and in the next verse it's God the Son. How do we know? Because the angels are singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So Jesus has the throne of God. That's a little tool for you to remember Jesus is God. He's got the whole world in his hands. Honor, attributes, names, deeds, and seat of God. Last night, my family gathered around God's word. We read Acts chapter 5, which is this morning's Sunday school lesson. I was looking for an ending to the sermon, and God, God gave me one. There's nothing more unsettling than not having the ending to your sermons Saturday night. Just go to sleep and hope you wake up with some revelation. And the high priest questioned them. Who? The apostles who had just been preaching Jesus' name in the temple. They were arrested and told not to preach in Jesus' name. They were put in prison, but God miraculously releases them uh, from prison. And they keep preaching. And so they bring them into the court and say, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold... You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand. As a prince, there's His kingly office, and a Savior, His priestly office, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. If you've put your faith in the risen Christ as King and Priest, you've also put your faith in Him as God. And if you believe with all your heart that Jesus is God, and if I believe with all my heart Jesus is God, then why do we disobey in private? Why do we sin in private? Can He not see us? Is He not our God at all times? Why do we often seek earthly leaders to fix our problems and lead the way when we have a high king in heaven? Why do we seek earthly priests? Yes, we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, but often we look for penance. Instead of wanting to give up our sin, we go to confess to our friends. It makes us feel better then we don't repent. We have a high priest, a perfect high priest. Go to Him. Confess your sins to Him. Be cleansed. And sin no more. Why, if Jesus is God, do we fear man so much and what they think and what their opinions are? Fear God and not man. And on that day when your faith is put to the test, fear the one who can not only destroy body, but judge spirit as well. Don't fear man. In fact, have compassion on those who have not accepted Jesus as God. You understand that they sit under His wrath. Have compassion. Witness to them. Profess Jesus as God and Lord perfect High Priest, and King of Kings. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we come before Your throne. High King, High Priest, thank You for ruling over our hearts and washing us clean by Your blood. Lead us, intercede for us, come back for us. We long to be with you and see you face to face. In the meantime, by your Spirit who dwells in us, teach us obedience and trust that we may show the world this marvelous King. This compassionate priest, this amazing God we know is Jesus. Amen. Amen, God bless you.